Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Clean Water Act and the courts. So, Richard, today's topic, not one that necessarily makes the front page of the papers that often, but one that can have an impact on an awful lot of Americans and what they can do with their property. Why don't we start here? The main focus of our conversation today is the Clean Water Act, which was passed into law in 1972. So before we get into what's happened over the years with the law, let's start there, 1972. So for the better part of two centuries, the United States did not have this piece of legislation. We're at that point – prior to that, were our waterways – Befouled? Was there no government oversight? Was there an obvious need to federalize this? What's the historical context here? Boy, this is an extremely difficult question to answer. First of all, there was no systematic federal regulation on this subject until 1899 when they passed the Rivers and Harbors Act, which is a relatively short statute, far more sensible than anything which has come since then. The Clean Water Act in 1972 is actually a modification of some versions of the statute which get passed in the immediate post-war issue. And in addition to all of that, there are the very strong common law rules on which exist with respect to nuisances. And I got interested in this topic uh, in two ways. One is I teach water law, and it was interesting to follow the evolution historically. And also when you do takings law, um, this now becomes a constitutional issue. So let me start with the common law position and then go to the clean. Uh, the Rivers and Harbors work that, and you could slowly go up. Common law position with respect to pollution is that it was a bad thing. And the most famous case that I taught is a case called Kerr uh, against the, uh, somebody against Kerr against the salt company, whatever its name was. And what the judges said, you're a big-time polluter. We're going to shut you down until you clean your stuff up. You're not allowed to justify the pollution of a major river by showing that it helps you with respect to your production. And then what happens is you start to develop techniques whereby you put the um, injunctive relief into effect. And the most common of them for salt and other things is what is called the settling pond. What you do is you have your runoff. Instead of putting it straight into the river, you get one of these settling ponds. You let it sit there. The pollutants tend to be heavy minerals. They drop out, and then you skim the water off the top into the river. And you know, with this, you find that this intermediate step – by and large, means that you can control the negative outputs with respect to this, and you put this in place. The interesting thing about it is it applied no matter what the substantive system was of property rights in water, whether riparians or prior appropriation or reasonable use, different ways of allocating the consumptive flow. Everybody realized that no matter how you operate on the consumptive flow side, you want to control this sort of pollution, and so they stopped. Now, what's the weakness of this common law system? Well, it basically the nuisance is only retroactive. That is, you have to first see what's going on and then get it. And the question is whether or not you want to have some anticipatory oversight. And in the 1899 Rivers and Harbors Act, which is a year from this salt case that I've told you, what they did is they made their move and they said if you want to dredge and fill public channels, you have to get approval from various kinds of government agencies and if you want to discharge pollution. So what you're talking about is people wanting to dump things into Lake Michigan or block channels or clear channels. And the difficulty about using private injunctions is who's going to bring it if there's a whole river that's in this kind of situation and can you reverse it if in fact you dredge a channel and it becomes impossible to return to the original condition. 
condition. And this was, by and large, a pretty straightforward kind of exercise. You found the greatest risks. You stopped them by regulation. And then the common law was still in place in order to deal with the other stuff. And my view is that that was probably the right result and that when you start getting to the Clean Air, the Clean Water Act, everything starts to go south and that we have actually a less sensible regime if what you're trying to do is not only stop pollution but to make sure that non-polluted act, non-polluting activities are allowed to go forward. To that point, the news hook here is that a few weeks ago, a federal judge in North Dakota took the relatively rare step of questioning the reach of the EPA's authority under the Clean Water Act, issued a preliminary injunction on a new EPA rule defining what counts as waters of the United States, specifically navigable waters. And that's the phrase that has been the source of so much mischief in this entire area of the law. So here's what I want you to do. Take us from the passage of the law in 1972 and stop just before we get to the Rapanos case in 2006 where I want to give you another prompt. But explain how in that time the courts have come to understand navigable waters. Well, the original meaning of navigable waters was coupled with the words territorial seas, and there were both at common law in the state and on the federal times tests of navigability, which meant can you actually run some kind of a boat up and down a river? And, you know, over time, it surely expands so a little canoe will count as a boat, so it's not just the Mississippi River. But the theory was that there always had to be some kind of flow. And then what happens is the statute now uses the phrase waters of the United States defined as navigable waters. And in 1975, there is a one-sentence opinion by a district court judge in a suit brought against the Army, Corps of Engineers, in which it says, whatever is the scope of the commerce power today, that's the scope of what we mean by a navigable river. And it turns out, of course, the scope of the Commerce Clause allows you to regulate anything on land or in sea. And so instead of basically doing what the rivers and Harbors acted, which is to get big-time pollution and stop it with injunctions before it caused damages, now all of a sudden you could go after the uplands um, in any way that you thought appropriate. So 10 years after this decision, there's a case called uh, Riverview Bayview Homes in which the Supreme Court takes this expansive view of what the power is, and now all of a sudden you want to put fill in on dry land where you don't even know whether there's going to be any leakage into the water. And what they say is, well, that's part of the navigable waters of the United States meaning dry land, you know, three miles from a river is in fact a navigable water if somebody from the army thinks that a drop of pollution could leak into it. And you just do the cost-benefit return from this as opposed to direct dumping. And it's quite clear that you're going after scraps. And the most important feature to understand about regulation is to call it quits before you go too far. And it turns out between the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers, they weren't causing, you know, calling it quits. They kept on asserting more and more jurisdiction over smaller and smaller things down to potholes, as it were. Okay. The the Rapanos case, I I want you to explain it, but the reason I asked you to stop before we got there is that I wanted to be sure that we highlighted this theme. One of the central insights that has to be understood by any student of Richard Epstein – indeed, it's so central that it's the title of one of your books – is the need for simple rules in a complex world, legal principles that are clear – concise, intelligible to the layperson, and I want you to explain what happened in this case, but most importantly to explain how Justice Kennedy produced a legal standard here that I imagine leaves the author of Simple Rules for a Complex World reaching for his antacids. 
Well, yes. I mean, it's not only that he got a standard which is fuzzy, he managed to misapply his own standard, so he gets a rare twofer. Rapanis <laughs> is one of these cases under the new regime in which some guy wants to build a foundation for his house. He is 11 miles away from the nearest body of navigable waters, and the government comes forward and says, you've got to get yourself a permit. Justice Scalia, in one of his very best opinions, says, you know, getting a permit costs you more than the value of this particular land because the Army Corps of Engineers requires you to negate every conceivable source of misconduct instead of doing the much more sensible thing is letting them actually show that there's some damage that comes at which point you can change the behavior in question. And so the Scalia position, he looks at the words waters of the United States and says they can't possibly mean this. There's no way on heaven's earth that it can go. The dissenters led by Breyer and Stevens take exactly the wrong position in my view. They said that since the federal government has now expanded its scope under the Congress, Power. We assume that the 1899 Rivers and Harvest Act and the 1972 Clean Water Act meant to take the full jurisdiction that Congress had. There is no congressional evidence that anybody would have thought that you treat building a house 10 miles from the nearest river is the same thing as dumping pollution into a lake you know, by literally taking the dumpsters and turning it over. And I think it's just horrific constitutional interpretation to do that. And there's no argument in favor of it. They just ipsedeeks it, the whole thing. Justice Kennedy, he's in the middle, it's 4-4, and he says, I want there to be a significant nexus between what's going on on the land and what happens in the water. And that means it's case by case. First thing is you count the number of plots of land, the numbers of ditches, the numbers of rivers, the numbers of potholes and so forth. You cannot ask for a jurisdictional standard which tells you what the EPA can do and not do, which every case is going to be its own adventure. And so you never want to put words like significant impact into a statute because you never know where it's going to lead. In fact, sometimes you don't even know whether it's going to have a significant impact. When they build, you've got to wait six years to see whether or not there's leakage or leaching that takes place going through. So that's the first thing. Then what he does is he says, in this case, I can't figure it out. Well, if you now think that it's an arguable case that some guy who's filling in land 11 miles from the nearest body of navigable waters can have a significant impact, it's all over. Because now anybody who's four miles away clearly will have that under this rather odd rule. So Justice Kennedy has the rare double of misapplying the wrong test. And that tends to give the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers all sorts of running room to pass these regulations. And that's exactly what they do. Let me ask you this question. It sounds by your diagnosis as if it was a combination of the courts and an overzealous executive branch, particularly the EPA, that got us into this mess. Who gets us out? Should we be looking at specific legislation, targeted lawsuits? How do you clean up the wreckage here? Well, look, one of the problems about regulation is it's a disaster in both directions. The Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, has all sorts of exemptions for major sources of agricultural pollution that do an immense amount of damage and which would be enjoinable under the old common law rules. So if you're going to go for a legislative fix, you have to understand that whereas the Clean Water Act regulations stop non-existent problems, they're really major problems which are now allowed to continue to go because they're congressionally authorized. So you have to go back to these characters in order to stop it. I think what you need is a constitutional 
constitutional reformation. And what the Supreme Court should say is, look, we think externalities are bad. You start creating nuisances downstream and nobody corrects it. That's a taking and you could be enjoined from doing it. And then on the other hand, I think they have to say that this wild overreach is completely inappropriate under the police power because there's no evidence whatsoever that any of these remote sites contribute a particle of damage. And so therefore you have to wait until you could show some actual connection before you enjoin it. Of the thousand projects that you build, 999 of them will basically be clear under this test. Under the current rule, every one of them has to go through this. Now, the question is, can you get them to go along? I think the conservative four on with Scalia would be sympathetic to something like this. Um, That's the way in which they wrote it. And the question is whether or not Justice Kennedy will repent in leisure. And the problem with Justice Kennedy is he's an anti-formalist. And, you know, that may be fine in certain kinds of areas with very complicated cases. But you're trying to get jurisdictional boundaries over what a government issue can and cannot do. Ad hoc tests of the sort that he's talking about take so much time to apply that they degenerate into one extreme or the other. And that's what the EPA and the Corps of Engineers have done. They said, you know, as far as we're concerned, if you're within 4,000 miles of no, 4,000 feet of a navigable body, uh, we may be able to decide on a case-by-case basis that you should get a permit. This is designed in a rule to clarify what things are. And the way they clarify it is we can drop the bomb on you anytime we want. And being 4,000 feet within one of these bodies, and they're defined in very broad ways, could cover half of California, half of Nevada, and so forth. In fact, one of the nice things about the uh, resistance that has been drafted to this by the American Farm Bureau, they actually map it out. And try to tell you what's going on. And you may be only adding 3% of the bodies of water, but the land around it is very much larger. And these guys are frightened to death that every time they put up a fence post, they're going to have to get a clearing from the Clean Water Act. And frankly, I don't blame them. I regard this as a bizarre excess and the statements Gina McCarthy makes is nothing new going on. Can't be right. If there was nothing new going on, if she talks to all these guys, they wouldn't bother to protest. The reason they're protesting is that everything is new is going on. And, and what you do is you have a typical government situation where they state one thing in general terms and you read the fine print and it's exactly the opposite. Final question. If that's how you deal with the morass that we're in now, let's take the alternative. Let's pretend for a moment the Clean Water Act never passed in the first place we're, and we're starting this more or less from scratch. You and I both know kind of the, the throwaway line, which is the libertarians, conservatives, they don't have any policies, any principles when it comes to the environment. What is a good policy framework that is consonant with classical liberal values look like on this issue? Yeah, this is a point that the, the misguided Paul Krugman made in a piece he wrote on Phosphorus and Freedom, one of the worst editorials in the history of Western civilization, um, <laughs> by, by announcing that libertarians don't care about pollution. You go back to Baron Bramwell, the leading libertarian. This was number one on his list. And the basic argument is as follows. Pollution is an extremely difficult thing to deal with because it tends to take place over large amounts of time, sometimes it's concentrated, sometimes it's diffuse, sometimes there's a single wrongdoer, sometimes there are multiple wrongdoers, sometimes there's a single visit, uh, weakness, uh, you know, victim, sometimes there are multiple divisions, and you can't get a single rule that's going to cover them all. So the basic paradigm goes like that. The simplest case is one guy essentially pollutes his neighbor. And for that, you just use the ordinary tort lose. Any physical invasion is presumptively wrong and you get damages or injunctions. And the common law of nuisance did that. When it comes to the pollution of water, there's something known as the 
public trust doctrine, which rightly says that the government essentially can protect public waters because there's no one else who can do it against this pollution. So they step in like a private owner and they start giving the injunctions as well. And you know that does it very well. If it turns out you've got diffusion on one side, say on producers, uh, then what you have to do is to figure out whether or not you could get some kind of a tax system whereby you monitor the amount of the externality and then distribute that money to the innocent victims of it or put it into a pollution control fund. Um, And you could certainly do that under both the Clean Water and the Clean Air Act because you don't want large amounts of small pollutions from multiple sources to go simply away. And if you know that they're there and they're regular, it's very different to have a thousand people leading a certain amount of phosphorus into the water, then it's have one guy building miles away where you don't know anything happened. And you need a system of direct regulation, preferably done at the state level for most of this stuff, rather than in doing this at the federal level. And if it turns out that you have single victims and large numbers of polluters, you know, it's very difficult to imagine that case. Again, you're going to need some kind of government oversight. And the basic rule should be for big kinds of mistakes, you want to lower them down. And for small kinds of mistakes, you want to charge them a tax, which is a substitute for the damage action. What you have to do is to not make the mistake to say it's either stop it or compensate. Basically, in all of these areas, the mixed solution is best. You start with a prohibition that gets rid of 90% of the pollution of the effusion, and then you put a tax on the remainder. And sure enough, as people see the tax and technology improves, they'll evolve so that the river becomes cleaner as you start to do this. Um, what the Clean Water Act does is completely reverse all of this stuff. It allows you to stop the kinds of things that are so remote that they really don't matter, and it gives exemptions to current sources of pollution that ought to be subject to much more strict government scrutiny. The Environmental Protection Act, in one of its major features, is an enormous source of protection for polluters. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.